Hey, um, I have to grab something. Uh, and while I'm doing that, look at the person next to you and ask them what their favorite fruit is. Okay? I want to know. Go ahead and ask them. Chatter, fruits, got some oranges, strawberries, raspberries, blueberries, bananas, anyone, bananas? It's a hot question, it'll make you think. All right, everybody got it, everybody said their piece. Anyone? Did anyone say oranges is the question. Raise your hand if you said oranges. One oranges. Okay. One oranges. That grammatically sounds weird. Um, I expected that to land a little bit harder because I thought more than one person would like oranges. But anyways, um, maybe this is throwing it off a little bit because these are the huge suckers. Um, the, the clementines. Maybe those are a little more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. We got at least a couple more oranges. Um, oranges are great, right? They're good fruit. You might not have loved them this morning, like when you're talking to your neighbor, but they're good. Um, vitamin C, it's a good thing, right? I mean, especially now, there's like contagions just like flying around all over the place, all over the globe. It's like, I mean, there was a time like two years ago when you couldn't find these in the grocery store, right? Like, believe that at that. But um, summer is coming around, citrus, fresh. See, I've already stood up, man. I'm just like, I'm ready to go today. Um, Oranges. Why am I starting like this? <laughs> so you know who really thinks twice whenever they see oranges on offer? Anybody who's seen the movie The Godfather? <laughs> Let me explain that a little bit because I know most of y'all are like, what the heck? Um, so The Godfather. Uh, anyone here seen The Godfather? Not see, seen The Godfather? Raise your hand if you've seen it. I promise you, yeah. I made him an offer he couldn't refuse. Like, okay. I knew I was going to drop that in at least once today. The realize it would be so quick. Um, okay. So The Godfather is this iconic uh, trilogy, this film trilogy that was filmed in the 70s by this guy named Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, and as far as like modern film goes, it is one of probably the top tier iconic films of the modern era, Right? I mean, if you haven't seen it, you have probably seen it referenced quite a few times in TV shows, other movies, stuff like that. It's The Godfather is just this beautiful masterpiece of, uh, of, of film. And the, the thing is, it's this infamous, it's this uh, look at this, the, this crime family called the Corleones. Uh, and this, they're a mafia family, and the whole trilogy is just their escapades who they're going to kill next, who they're going to move on to, who they're going to kill next. And it's, it's amazing. It's actually based on a book. Um, but the book, I think, I think it's kind of eclipsed and overshadowed by the fact that the movie trilogy was so well shot and so well done that people kind of don't even realize that there was a book kind of behind all of that. See, Francis Ford Coppola did this really 
artful, masterful job in the 70s of taking this world of the Godfather and putting it on the screen. And just like any good director, any good storyteller, he, he knows how to take uh, an audience and bring them along on a journey, right? So they know, like good, good directors, good writers, they know like when they're crafting a shot, they know what to put in the dialogue. They know what to leave out of the dialogue. They know how to frame a certain shot and foreground something and background something else to engage the reader or the viewer sometimes without them even knowing this. This is what it, it means to be a good writer, whether it's visual, whether it's just in a novel. See, good writing is, uh, is taking an idea or a motif or a theme or something like that and not just like cramming it down the audience's throat, right? No, rather, it's, it's subtly introducing it, starting to weave it in from scene to scene, and they leave sort of this like trail of breadcrumbs, right? So if you start to pick up on it, it will lead you from scene to scene. And uh, this is just good storytelling, right? We're used to it. We see it all the time. Netflix is our thing, Amazon, there's all kinds of streaming services nowadays. We get good stories portrayed to us all the time. And one of the ways that the Godfather does this with good storytelling, good narrative, is actually through oranges, believe it or not. So it's a mob movie, right? So it's just, you know that people are dead left and right, right? People are just going to get killed. They're getting off. They're getting whacked, I think is the actual term for a, for a mob monster or something like that. Um, so you're watching this unfold, right? You're watching people just like they're, the Corleone family's got their eyes set on them and they're going to be off. And if you're intuitive, you understand the dialogue, understand the feel, you can probably get a feel for who's coming next, right? So if you're paying attention like that, paying attention to the dialogue, but there's actually an even more distinct tell in the movie for you to know when somebody's about to lose their life. And it's actually through oranges, believe it or not. I'm really self-conscious about how I say the word oranges, too, because my wife's been making fun of me for that for the last, like, couple months. So, oranges. Um, oranges. So, if you pay attention, right before any character in the movie gets killed, they will appear in a scene, a few scenes prior, with oranges, in some form or fashion, it's really interesting. Some of, like, and just like good storytellers, sometimes it's really obvious right on front. Other times it's really subtle and you have to pay attention to find it. Like the very first time, one of the main characters is, he's clearly got the, the sights on him. He's, he's actually out and he's, he's at a supermarket and he's pretty clearly, you know, on edge. He's trying to get his produce and go and he's at the orange section. He fills his bag up with oranges Two guys roll up in a car. They bust out of the car door. He runs away, tries to get away. They gun him down right there on the street, and oranges just fly all over the place in the street. The next time, there's a character, a few scenes later, he's sitting having lunch, just real common, sitting having lunch, reaches over, grabs an orange, tosses it in the air, starts to peel it and to eat it. A couple scenes later, dude's gone. Dude's gone whacked. And one of my favorite ones, this is really cool because it's so subtle, 
is there later on in the trilogy, there's, there's one of the main characters, and he's at a, a party, he's at a wedding, and he's, he's dancing, there's like this big dance floor, everybody's having a great time, and he's getting after it, and he is drenched in sweat, breathing so hard, dude's a little bit heavy, so he's, you know, whatever, he's, he's sweating, he's breathing hard, and he comes over to the side, and one of his little like crony henchman dudes comes up, and they start talking like mobster stuff, right, you know, whatever, and uh, but he sees that his boss is sweaty and out of breath, and so he grabs a pitcher of juice or a pitcher of punch from the party, it's a lot of peas, grabs that, gives it to his boss to start drinking, and if you pay attention, as he drinks, in the pitcher floating around is a bunch of slices of oranges. And sure enough, a couple scenes later, dude's gone. That's where they give the famous line, the, like, take the gun, or leave the gun, take the cannoli. Anyone heard that one? Yeah, it's classic. So it's so cool. I love when, so we love when stories do this, right? Because there's this element of participation in it. Like if you can get clued into that, oh, right before somebody dies, there's oranges in a scene. All of a sudden you start watching the movie differently, don't you? You start looking out for, is there oranges in the scene? If so, who, who are they highlighting? Who are they by? You start watching with a sort of attentiveness that you weren't watching with before. And what I want us to realize this morning before we even get rolling is that the biblical writers are doing this to you. They're writing like this. They're not just like, hey, you know, some crazy stuff happened. We should probably write that down just for memory's sake. Pick up a pen and paper and start going after it. They are crafting something that they want you to come with them on the journey, particularly in narratives. We're in 1 Samuel. We're in narrative form. 70% of your Bible is narrative. So 70% of the time you're going to see narrative, and, and they're especially doing it there. Oh, yeah, here we go. Um, so we're eventually going to get to 1 Samuel. David's going to be anointed king. But before we do that, we're going to back it all the way back up. Page one of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis 1. So if you've got a Bible on your phone or um, in your hand, go ahead and turn. Page one, Genesis 1, chapter 1. If Cody is up here teaching and uh, he's not taking you back to Genesis 1 through 3, uh, call an ambulance because uh, something's wrong with me. Uh, <laughs> Genesis 1 through 3 is the seedbed of absolutely everything in the Bible. So I'm always going to do my best to take you back there. Um, before we get rolling, um, just a little bit of a disclaimer. This, if, if there's a spectrum, this might lean a little bit more luxury than sermon-ish. Um, those are technical terms. Um, and I kind of want to apologize for that. I also kind of don't at all want to apologize for that because I think it's important. Um, I think you didn't just come here, you don't come here week in and week out to just be given like a little nugget of encouragement to leave. I think you came here to learn about God and to learn about his word. Uh, and so we're going to lean a little bit more heavily on learning this morning. So I hope that's okay. Um, just be prepared. We're going to be looking at some slides. We're going to be jumping into a lot of scripture. We're going to be looking at Hebrew, believe it or not. So it's not going to be too complicated. We're going to walk through it. Um, but yeah, I think you guys have the capacity for it, and I'm stoked to, to journey together. So is that cool? Does that make sense? A little disclaimer? Awesome. All right, Genesis 1, page 1 of the Bible. This is way before Samuel, way before Saul, way before David, way before anything at all. It's just God and nothing else. 
Genesis 1 says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Next verse, it's going to be up behind us. A lot of these are going to be up here, so if you're reading along, you'll you'll be able to see it up here too. Genesis 1, verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God, ra'ah, saw. It's just simply the Hebrew word to see, just like you think it is, to see. God saw that the light was tov. Good. Very simply, it's the Hebrew word for good, pleasant, right, Uh, You might actually know this word. If you're at a Hebrew gathering, it's a celebration, you usually say to somebody, mazel, mazel tov, mazel tov, same same kind of vibe. Um, It just means good luck, good health to you. So you actually might already know that word. So this is our pattern right here. Okay, this um, this is what we have. We have God acting. We have him stepping back, seeing what he's done, and declaring that it's good. These are, this is our basket of oranges, for lack of a better term, okay? And we know that this is important in Genesis 1 because it's actually going to go on to repeat this seven times. If you're a teacher or a tutor, what is the way that you get your students to finally pick up on something and retain it? Repetition, 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 Right? You just repeat it over and over again until somebody finally goes, oh, okay, okay, I get what's going on. The Bible's doing this to you all the time. If it does it to you seven times, something's up. Pay attention to that. So God creates, he sees, he declares that it is good over and over again. And, and day six, right before he moves into the seventh time, he, he says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make one more creature. He's been making domains and filling them with all, all of their inhabitants. And he goes, I'm going to make one more creature. Uh, he's going to be a blend of earth that I've been making and also my own divine breath. He's going to be special like that. And he actually makes two of them because... He makes one, and it's the first time in the narrative that he looks at something and goes, it is lotov, not good. When he makes the man and the man is alone, he goes, this is not good. So he makes a helper, a woman, fit for him, and he gives them to each other. And he steps back after this one final time, and he goes, he sees it, and he goes, behold, it is very good. Tov meod literally means strongly good. So God finishes his work, sees it, calls it good, and that's our, that's our pattern we're looking for, right? The man and the woman are there. It says they're naked and they're unashamed. Nothing to hide, everything out in the open. It's perfection. God comes to the man and to the woman and he says, hey, here's the deal. Everything that I have made, everything in this domain that I've just felt, all the trees, the animals, they're yours. Rule, have dominion over them. Every tree, you can have it, you can eat of it. He literally says, 
Feasting, you shall feast on everything that I have given to you, except one thing. Gives them one caveat. Does anyone know what it's called? He says, don't eat of the what? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? (laughs) It's like... That's why we treat it, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and <laughs> evil. Like, we, we do this. We, we take it and we make it so abstract and philosophical, right? We make it all, all meta, which is not bad. Um, I think those words are in there. I, I just think it's a little more helpful to look at it in the context of the narrative that we're in. So check this out. This is the next slide, Genesis 2.16. God gives them all the trees, and he says, but of the tree of the knowing of tov and ra, the Hebrew word for bad, translated evil, you shall not eat. So we've seen tov before in our context. We know what tov is. It's it's life. It's flourishing. It's everything that God has been doing so far Ra is the opposite of that, right? It gets translated evil, which we go, okay, I know moral evil. It's huge, meta, philosophical, right? That's true. That's in there. But in Proverbs, you actually can have a tooth that is Ra. Is your tooth wicked and evil? No, it's just like, it's a bad tooth, like, and it hurts when you bite on something. It's not functioning like a tooth is supposed to function, and so it's raw. So of the tree of the knowing of tov and raw, you shall not eat. The question for you, thus far in our narrative, who has been the knower of good? God, right? How's that been going so far? Pretty good pretty stellar, right? It's like God makes these domains and the narrative says that he fills them with life so that it is swarming and teeming with life. And it's this stuff that he looks at and he goes, that's good. But now there's this tree and a choice. Are Adam and Eve going to continue to let God be the knower of good versus not good? Or are they going to take that responsibility for themselves? And you're probably familiar with the story. There's this, this scene where this, this rebellious being, this serpent is what he's called. He comes and he uh, tries to convince the man and the woman that God is actually holding out on them. And he's not cool for not giving them this one thing. And it's actually in their best interest to ignore what God said and to take the fruit for themselves. And they believe him. And out of this belief, we have this new, warped, broken rendition of the pattern that's going to start to show itself. Check it out in Genesis 3, verse 6. should be up there. Color-coded, just saying. Helpful. I think this is one of the most important verses in the Bible. So, after the serpent says his piece, he gives his pitch to Adam and Eve. This is what we get. So, when the woman, Ra'ah, saw that the tree was 
good for food. And that it was a delight, la enaim, to the eyes. Similar blue right there, seeing into the eyes. And that the tree was chamad, desirable to make one wise. She lakach, took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So the man and the woman now, they do some seeing of their own. They look and they see that this tree is good to them, it's desirable to them, and they act on it. They reach out and they take And the narrative says that immediately something happens. It says that these eyes that they just used to see that all of this is good and desirable, it says that their eyes are opened and they know for the first time that they're naked. And so they start to cover themselves up. They sew fig leaves together to cover themselves from one another. And beyond that, check this out. This is verse 8. After this, they're already hiding from themselves, from each other. And then they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, Chabah, hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. Hold on to that. But Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. So our new warping of the pattern emerges, right? All of a sudden, we've got rotten oranges here. So we have this seeing, this judging, this declaring that this is good in my sight, this desiring and then acting on it, taking, and out of that flows hiding, covering up, and then all of this other brokenness that we're going to explore as well. And so in this scene, God meets them. He he already shows up, right? And and out of this, he says, he tells them, hey, here's what's going to come out of your disobedience and out of this choice that you have made. All of a sudden, there's now going to be pain, There's going to be strife. There's going to be enmity and separation between you two who are already hiding from one another. There's going to be separation from you and me. You have already hidden from me. The ground that you are supposed to be working that's supposed to yield its fullness to you is all of a sudden going to be hard, difficult. Eve, you're going to have pain in your childbirth. And the list goes on, and God actually sends them out of the garden, and, and pretty quickly we, get, we see the narrative descent from this. It's pretty quickly right out of the gate that, sure enough, Eve has two kids with painful childbirth, and these two kids, one murders the other. So there's death. Not long after this, like as they continue to populate and fill the earth, it says that their male descendants start to take all of their female descendants and enslave them and treat them like property rather than that co 
equal helper that they were made to have. You have this coming out and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and filling the earth more and more. And it's not long after this is on page two or three, I would say, of the Bible. Go ahead and turn to Genesis 6 if you got it. It's also kind of going to be up here. So. It's Genesis 6. So we've had one rebellion already, right? We've had the snake comes down convinces the man and the woman not to believe God. They rebel. We're about to have our second rebellion. Genesis 6, man, this deserves its own sermon series, truthfully. Um, We're just going to touch on it today. Uh, This is one of those uh, parts of the Bible that's like, hmm, that is weird. Skip. And you just like flip right on past it. Um, I promise you there is gold here. There is actual gold here that is worth not skipping. Um, We're not going to touch on it today, Um, but let's just briefly look at it. Genesis 6, 1 through 3. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to him, the sons of God saw, ra'ah, that the daughters of men were beautiful or attractive. Literally, the word is good. And as they did this, they took as their wives any as they chose. Sons of God, a lot of commentaries, study Bibles will tell you that it's like like ancient kings and like these are what they used to call men back in the day. Uh, That's not true. Um, We have had an earthly rebellion. Uh, We now have a heavenly rebellion that starts to bleed over and intermingle with the brokenness that is already happening on the earth. And the result is just chaos on violence, on chaos, on oppression, descending into more and more destruction. And so much so that it gets to this point in Genesis 6, 5, which is our next slide. God looks down, God who was looking and seeing so much good, and now he looks and he sees no good at all. So Yahweh saw, looked, that the Ra of man was great in the earth. And that this is so interesting. Every purpose of the thoughts of his heart was only Ra continually. And Yahweh was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. But... Noah found favor, la'enaim, in the eyes of Yahweh. So this is kind of our first look at this idea of, apparently God has a heart. I mean, not like a physical heart, like that's not really how we talk about our heart either, but like an inner being, and apparently it can be grieved. Apparently this unmovable causer of creation separate from it can actually regret something that he's done. And what does he see when he sees? He looks and he sees in the heart of men and all he sees is Ra. And it grieves him and he sees this Ra polluting his world and he decides to wipe it clean. But there's this little ski jump at the end of it of hope where it says that Noah finds favor in the sight of the Lord. 
And in spite of this, he actually preserves a remnant through Noah. The story goes on. Out of Noah, eventually he picks this other guy named Abram. Abram is this old dude with a wife who is barren. They have never been able to have kids for their entire life together. He comes to Abraham, he goes, through you, I'm going to choose you, and in you, I will blow up this enormous family, and through your family, I will bless all of the families of the earth. So he goes with Abraham. He actually makes good on his promise, and Abraham's family is multiplied. They become the people of Israel. This family ends up enslaved in Egypt, oppressed by the Egyptians, but actually under this oppression, they just keep growing all the more because God is with them. And eventually they, they cry out to God, who once again sees and hears their cry, and he selects another man, Moses, to go and deliver them. So he sends Moses to deliver the people He does it, you know the story, right? Ten plagues, ten judgments, splitting of the Red Sea, bringing the people across. And then we come to this really pivotal scene. He's on his way. He's leading them into this land of promise, flowing with good for them. And then before we get there, they stop at this mountain and effectively have a marriage ceremony where he goes to the people and he goes, hey, look, here's the deal. Here's the covenant. You will be my people. I will be your God. That's it. We're going to make that covenant. Moses is on the mountain signing the marriage papers effectively. And then all of a sudden, a bunch of oranges start to show up in the scene again. Check out Exodus 32. It's actually going to be up there. So, Exodus 32, 1. Now when the people... Ra'ah saw that Moses delayed to come down. Already not looking good. The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make for us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the dude who like brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's up with him. He's been up there for like 40 days. Let's forget about him. Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, in in your kids' ears, your wife's ears, all that. Bring them to me. So the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And Aaron lakach the gold from their hands. And he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And the people said when they saw this calf, these are your gods, O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw that the people were responding like this, he built an altar for it and said, tomorrow shall be a feast unto Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day, offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, which is actually just a Hebrew euphemism for things got rowdy. Like, like not the good kind of rowdy, like, like the naughty kind of rowdy. Yahweh's up on the mountain. Um, he looks down. He sees his people and the choice that they've made. And again, he's grieved. And this time he's angry, but Moses actually does this cool thing. He intercedes before God and he goes, look, no, look, don't destroy them. Destroy me instead of them. 
destroy me instead of them. I know they're stiff-necked, they're stupid, they shouldn't be doing this. But you know, don't let them say, oh, he brought them out of Egypt just to kill them in the wilderness. Destroy me instead. And God actually backs off. And patiently, he bears with Israel. And in spite of this, he continues to lead them. He leads them through the wilderness all the way up to the promised land. And he brings them in and gives it to them. But in spite of his patience and care and delivering them into the promised land, Israel continues to forsake the things of Yahweh. They don't drive out the inhabitants of the land like they were commanded to. In fact, they actually just let them hang and they start to adopt their practices. Like, how do you guys worship? Oh, that's, that's cool. They like bring that into the fold. Because they refuse to obey God, he's not with them when they go to battle. So they end up just getting conquered over and over again. And this people that was delivered out of oppression and slavery in Egypt, delivered into the promised land, all of a sudden in said promised land finds themselves oppressed over and over again because of their disobedience. And so they cry out, out of their oppression. And God again hears And what does he do? Over and over, he raises up a deliverer for them through judges. This deliverer comes and he he leads this charge. He delivers them out of the hand of their oppressor and things are good again. And then Israel slips back into the same stuff. And all of a sudden, a new oppressor rises up, overtakes them. And the book of Judges, which is right before 1 Samuel, where we are, is this cycle over and over and over again to the point where at the very end, the last sentence in the book of Judges is this one. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right, le'enayim, in their own eyes. So we're in Samuel. We finally got there. Thanks for coming along on the journey. First Samuel begins, and we quickly learn one of the things that is right in the eyes of Israel. So Israel looks around, look to the right and to the left. They see their neighbors around them, and they see that everybody has a king. And they don't have a king. You know, these same people that they were driving out that God said, hey, do not be like them. They will, they will corrupt you. It will go really bad. Do not be like them. They look at them. They go, they got a king. I think we want a king. So they come to Samuel, and they go, hey, Samuel, we talked together as Israel, um, and we want a king, just like the rest of these nations do. So Samuel is grieved by this, um, but Yahweh comes to him, and he goes, oh, there's literally fruit flies flying around and getting on the fruit. That's hilarious. Get out of here. Anyways, yeah, yeah, right. Mm. It's a metaphor there. Um, so Samuel goes, okay, here's the deal. Or I'm sorry, God comes to Samuel and goes, hey, here's the deal. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. Listen to their voice. He literally says, obey their voice. Do what they say. Samuel goes back to the people. He says, okay, here's the deal. God is going to give you a king. Here's why this is going to be very bad. He will take from you. He will rule over you. He will be a broken man just like you are, but you will give him all the power and he will rule over you. So 
Get ready for that. They said, that's great. We'll take it. And then this is so interesting. We enter into this weird ambiguity within the narrative where God is the one who, you know, leads Saul to Samuel, tells Samuel, hey, anoint this man as king over Israel. But if you pay attention, never once in the narrative does God say that he chose Saul. It only ever says, okay, he's the anointed of the Lord. God says, mark this man, anoint him as king. In fact, I think we get a clue from the narrative that Israel knew who they wanted all along. So if you remember Saul, when we're introducing him, he is rich, he's wealthy, he is from a prominent family within Israel. And then not only that, within said prominent family, he is super tall and extremely attractive. So it seems like Saul has already caught the eye of Israel as a whole. In fact, this is so interesting. This is in chapter 9 of 1 Samuel. One of the first things that Samuel says to Saul is this. 1 Samuel 9, there we go. Is not all the Hamad desire of Israel upon you, Saul? So Saul seems to already be their guy. Or at the very least, he's like the archetype of what they're looking for, right? Rich, tall, attractive, probably a good warrior. So Yahweh tells Samuel, okay, this is the king. Anoint this guy. Uh, Bring him before Israel. And this is the scene that we talked about last week. Joshua covered this last week. Um, And let's take another glance at it. So remember, prior to this, Israel is doing what is right in their eyes. They've looked around at the nations around them. They've seen that they have kings and they have desired Saul, a king, like the rest of these nations. Let's see what happens. So they decide, so Samuel gathers them together. They decide to cast lots to select the king, which is actually really common. This is a way to kind of bring the Lord in, like, hey, you're the, you're the God of all things. Surely you can control this lot and let us know what you want. So they would frequently cast lots in the Bible. But this is so interesting because it's so ambiguous. First Samuel 10, then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was Lachach by lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clan, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, actually, was taken by Lot. This is the best part, man. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of Yahweh, is there a man to come still? Next slide. This is so good. And Yahweh said, behold, he has Chabah, himself among the baggage. He's hidden himself. They get this. So they ran and Lakach took him from there and made him king. Oranges all over the place in this scene, right? This is this really powerful narrative ambiguity where you're supposed to step back and go, wait a minute, did Did God choose Saul or did Israel choose Saul? 
And we explored last week that Saul is this like complex, very human character who's got these stellar like, oh my gosh, yes, absolutely, he nailed it moments. But then also he just always seems to miss it just by that much. He always thinks he's doing the right thing, or at least it's, it's right to him. It's right in his own eyes, but it's just not quite what Yahweh commanded or quite what he wanted. It's like his vision. Remember Joshua talking about this? Like he tells the men to fast, and it actually muddies his and all of their vision so they can't see. It's like the, the paradigm of Saul's rulership is muddy vision. And even with all of his best self-deluded intentions, his disobedience shows that he's unfit to be the king of Israel. So finally, we come to our text today. It's 1 Samuel chapter 16. Thank you guys for coming along with that. It's this crucial pivot point in the story of 1 Samuel where Saul has been Seen, chosen, taken, and failed. And so God steps in and rolls up his sleeves, so to speak. Check this out. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 16 if you're still following along. This is so cool. Yahweh said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse of Bethlehem, for I have Ra'ah for myself, a king among his sons. A lot of your translations say provided for myself. Good translation, but it literally says seen. I've seen for myself a king among his sons. So I'm going to actually read read what what the text is. Get us there. So from here, um, Samuel says, okay, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he's going to kill me. I can't do this. Yahweh says to him, hey, look, take a heifer, take a cow with you, and tell them, tell the people, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? He's like, he's like, chill, it's good, peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh here. It's all good. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. That's our next slide. This is super interesting. When they came, Samuel, Samuel get caught lacking right here. Samuel looked on, saw Eliab and thought, surely Yahweh's anointed is before us. But Yahweh said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For, this is probably the most important verse in the entire book, for Yahweh Ra'ah sees not as man. Man Ra'ah La'enaim. Man looks on the outward appearance. Literally, you could translate, man looks at what can be seen with the eyes. But Yahweh looks on the heart. 
So they keep going down the list, right? Son after son. Says he looked on Eliab. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. Okay, it's got to be Shema, right? He said, neither has Yahweh chosen this one. This is so interesting. And you know, at some point that Samuel, who's already kind of been caught off guard right here, is thinking he's seeing that Jesse has seven sons. And you know, at some point, Samuel is like, I get it, seven. God loves sevens, right? Seven days of creation, seventh day Sabbath. Okay, and, and Samuel at some point is like, okay, okay. I'll wait for the first six, but we'll see what's up with the seventh. Well, you know that Samuel's thinking that at some point. Get this, verse 10. And Jesse made seven of his sons Passed before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, Yahweh has not chosen any of these. The seventh son comes and goes. Yahweh says, nope, not my chosen. And all of a sudden, we're at Saul's inauguration again, right? Here he is, king of Israel, king of Israel, about to be revealed, about to be revealed. No, no one. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? Jesse said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but I mean, behold, he's he's watching the sheep. He's not, I mean, whatever, he's watching the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So David, this eighth son, is not hiding, but he is hidden. He's forgotten about. I mean, how unseen do you have to be to where this prophet of God, famous in Israel, comes to your dad and goes, I want to see all of your sons because there's a king for Israel among your sons. And he doesn't even think to go get David. How unseen is that? Yahweh sees, not as man sees, though. Check this out. This is so cool. Next slide. And he sent and brought him in. This is, this is so tight. I love this. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes. And this is so cool. Your translations will probably say good looking. He's good looking. He looks good. He's attractive. Literally, it says he's got good eyes and good sight. this other poetic ambiguity within the narrative. I mean, it certainly seems like Israel at this point could use a king who sees clearly, who sees well. So David comes in, he's got beautiful eyes, and he sees good. Yahweh said to Samuel, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Get this. Then Samuel, lakach, the horn of oil, and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. As we start to watch from this point on in our series, David's rise and then his kingship, we're going to start to see a real distinct difference in how Saul and David go about their decision-making in leadership. 
If you remember Saul, Saul is just always ready to go, always chomping at the bit to do whatever seems good to him. And then, you know, he's the kind of guy who likes to leap and then look afterwards to see if it was the best deal. And over and over, he's doing things, doing things, and then after the fact, trying to spin it or twist it to look like he did it for Yahweh, right? No, 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 no. I didn't kill all of the sheep because we're going to sacrifice those to Yahweh. That's why I did that. David, throughout his story, it's this really cool deal. He has this habit. You can see the next slide. Anytime there's a big decision on the line with David, the scriptures will give you this refrain. It says, and David inquired of Yahweh. Sometimes it says, and David went in and inquired of Yahweh, went into the temple to be in his presence and inquired of him. See, David, anointed by the Lord, feels the weight of his responsibility and his role to lead the people of God. And so these decisions come up, and David's mindset is, how could I not? How could I not inquire with Yahweh about what he desires that I do here? If you remember what Samuel told David, or uh, Sorry, what God told Samuel earlier, he says, Samuel, I don't look on outward appearances, but I look on the heart. What does that even mean, though? Like, when Yahweh looks at David's heart, what does he see that is so attractive to him? Well, what is David most famously known as? The man after God's own heart. And it's this crazy dynamic, we can go to the next slide, where Yahweh's heart is seeing, looking at, looking into David's heart. And when he sees into David's heart, he sees a heart that is looking in and being after Yahweh's heart. And it's this crazy reciprocal upward building cycle of like, well, what do you, David, what do you want? Well, I... I want to know what you want. How would you have me lead? See, David, this shepherd boy, alone out in the field, man, David doesn't see walking with Yahweh as this little box to check, as the king of Israel, oh yeah, I should probably consult the Lord to see, okay, check that box. No, Yahweh, David loves Yahweh. Over and over, we see this in the Psalms. This is so crazy. crazy. Let's read Psalm 23. You, you can turn there. You don't have to. I'll just read it over us. But This is the king of Israel. What king is able to simultaneously be king and the most prolific poet, songwriter of the scriptures? I'm going to invite the band to come back up and start to play a little bit. We're going to transition into communion and stuff. So David, this shepherd king, this is, this is the way that he views, walks with the Lord. You know this one. He says, Yahweh is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. 
He leads me in paths of righteousness for his own name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of death's shadow, I will fear no ra, no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows with you. Surely goodness and mercy shall chase me down all the days of my life. And I will dwell in Yahweh's house forever. It's this humble, forgotten shepherd boy king quietly out in the field day after day that God looks at and he goes, him. I see him. He's very unseen out here. I see him. If you remember Hannah's prayer at the beginning of our series here, one of the themes of 1 Samuel, that God sees and exalts the humble and the lowly, but the lofty, the proud, he brings low. So we're going to get to spend the rest of our series in 1 Samuel watching David. Watching his rise. Watching him be human too. Watching him fail and leave us with this eager expectation for somebody who's going to be just a little bit more like he should have been. We're going to take communion together this morning and I'm going to close and invite you guys to do that in a second. Uh, We're not going to do the circle up, not, not a lot of time that I've left for that this morning, but I, as you get communion and reflect this morning, uh, a couple questions I want to ask you. Um, is that last slide? Do we still have it? Yeah, there we go. Are there spaces in my life where I am hiding, like Saul or Adam? Are there spaces in my life where I feel hidden? or unseen like David. Just reflect on that. Bring that to the Lord. If you're hiding, it's not a good thing usually. The Lord will meet you there, but the the goal is to bring you into openness, intimacy, no separation. And if you feel hidden, unseen, I mean, you don't even know what God is about to do with David, the heights that he's about to exalt him to from this unseen, quiet, forgotten space in the field. It's like rest in that today. Wrestle with God in that this morning.